So as we begin tonight, I wanted to talk about that hymn that we just sang. Um, there's a, a story that goes around about how Augustus top lady, he lived back in the 1700s, and how he got caught in a thunderstorm and he hid in the cleft of this rock. And you can go to this place in England where he lived and they'll show you this rock that he hid in. That's not a true story at all. <laughs> in actuality, the story behind that hymn is actually more interesting and actually relates to the stuff we're going to look at tonight into the book of Galatians. So, you know, sometimes Christians disagree about doctrines and about theology and they fight about it. And sometimes the fights are public and they're really kind of embarrassing. Uh, and there was one of those kind of fights between Augustus Toplady and John Wesley. Maybe you've heard of John Wesley. Um, and they were arguing particularly about how after somebody becomes a Christian, after somebody by faith becomes in a relationship with God, then could they get to the point where they had so much faith, such a strong belief that they wouldn't sin anymore? And Wesley argued for that. Though he never claimed it for himself, he said that you could be so filled with the power of the Spirit that you wouldn't consciously sin anymore. And Augustus Toplady didn't agree with that at all, didn't think that that was a, uh, a true biblical idea. And so he actually, you know, they wrote different articles back and forth, uh, arguing against each other, and one of the articles that Augustus Toplady wrote was kind of a bizarre article. He basically looked at the national debt of England, which, which was massive, much like, you know, we have a massive national debt, um, that you're all going to inherit. It's going to be great. Um, <laughs> but they had this massive national debt. And so what a top lady did is he basically wrote this article comparing um, the sins that a Christian commits to the national debt. And he actually went through this bizarre calculations of how many sins you would commit as a Christian if you sin like three times a minute or, you know, whatever it is, and then you live so many years, then you would get this number. And he actually comes up with this number. But then at the end of that weird article, he attaches this hymn. And the name he gave to it is important. The name that he gave to the hymn you know as Rock of Ages was a living and a dying prayer for the holiest believer on earth. It's kind of a mouthful, but it's actually an important title a living and a dying prayer for the holiest believer on earth. Now, the reason I tell you that story is because I want to point out one of the verses. And the reason I want to point out one of the verses is because I've been doing campus ministry here at Belmont for a long time. And one of the things that I find over and over and over again is that people that have been raised in the church generally feel pretty guilty about their prayer life, about their lack of living the way they feel that they should. And they usually have an easier time accepting forgiveness for the things they did before they became a Christian than they do for the things after they become a Christian. Because they feel like, I should know better now. I know about Jesus, I know about his love, and yet I still don't seem to live uh, fired up for Jesus all the time. Or even worse... They're around people who seem fired up for Jesus all the time, and you feel like you have to pretend too. So I love this verse, verse 2, that says, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's commands. That means you can't do everything that you need to do to ensure the smile of God for the rest of your life. You can't do it. You can't, by the labor of your own hands, Fulfill the demands of the law. And then it goes on. It says, could my zeal 
no respite, no. That means even if you could always be zealous for God and his kingdom, even if you could be fired up for Jesus all the time, could my tears forever flow? That means even if you could weep over your failings and your shortcomings the way you should, none of that, he goes on to say, could atone for sin. So even if you could be fired up for Jesus all the time, which you can't be, and even if you really could weep over sin and brokenness the way you should, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. And now remember the title. A living and a dying prayer for the holiest believer on earth. What Top Lady is saying is, you never outgrow your need for the gospel. You ever, never outgrow your need for grace. One of the great tragedies of people who've been raised in great Bible-believing churches is they think of the gospel as the way you get into a relationship with God. They don't understand that it's the way you grow in your relationship with God as well. And that really is the heart of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Later, he's going to talk about after you began with grace, now you're attempting to kind of live the Christian life based on your own efforts. And it doesn't work that way. The gospel is not just something you attach at the end of a sermon when you invite people to walk forward. The gospel, the good news that Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners is what Christians need to grow. And if you're not a Christian and you're trying to figure out what Christianity is about, here's one thing that I'm going to say that I hope will be helpful to you. If you're around Christians that don't understand what I just said, they're some of the most miserable people you'll ever meet. As a matter of fact, there's this guy, Richard Loveless. I was just reading an interview with Tim Keller, pastor up in New York City. Maybe a lot of you know his name. Um, so when he went to seminary to study to be a pastor, his first semester, he took a class from this guy, Richard Lovelace. And he talked about it, actually, in an article that I posted um, today. He, he took this class on the history of revivals from Richard Loveless. And here's what Richard Loveless says. He said that Christians, people that go to church regularly, that read their Bible regularly, if they don't understand that the gospel is for Christians and that they need it now to live and to die and to begin the life of faith, if they don't understand that, they are psychologically worse off than people who don't believe in Jesus. Because every time they read their Bible, they feel just they get reminded of all the things they're not doing. Every time they go to church, they hear about all the things they're not doing. And if they don't read the Bible and sing songs and, and hear the gospel that Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners all the time, they actually feel worse and worse the longer they're hanging out with Christianity. And I'll just tell you, there's a lot of your friends and probably some people here tonight that are in that exact place. They need to know and you need to know, and I need to know, that the good news of the gospel is for all of us. In some ways, I don't even have to try and figure out as a pastor whether you're a Christian or whether you're maybe trying to figure this out or where you are. Maybe you're not even sure. Here's the good news. You don't have to figure it out. You need the gospel, no matter what, no matter who you are. Paul here talks about this gospel that's been distorted. For the Galatians. Some false teachers have come in and they've introduced distortion. 
Now, I play electric guitar, so I like distortion, but <laughs> not all distortion is good. Not all distortion is good. And we're going to look at the distortion of the gospel tonight and see why it's a big deal. So let's read Galatians. Some of these verses we read last week, but I wasn't able to get into all of the, the stuff about the distortion that we need to look at tonight. So if you have a Bible, it's Galatians chapter 1, starting at verse 6. This is God's word. Galatians 1, starting at verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there really is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Strong words. Let's pray that God would help us to understand why these words are so strong. Lord, we ask that you would send your spirit. Because spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And we need your help. So please send your spirit to help us in Jesus' name. Amen. I put this uh, quote on, at the beginning from Richard Lovelace. It's not exactly the one I referenced, but it's from the same chapter in the same book. You might read that a little later. But I want to jump right into... What is the distortion that Paul's talking here? He says here that they've distorted the gospel. These people have troubled you. Remember, Paul is writing to people that he himself had preached the gospel to these people when he was basically waylaid there in Galatia. He didn't intend to go there, but he got waylaid. He got sick and had to stay there for a while, preach the gospel to these people. They, they bonded. They had great love between them, and then he got called to, on to another place and after he left, some false teachers came in and said, you know, that Paul, he said some things that were true, but he really didn't tell you everything. He really didn't tell you how to become holy. He, he talked to you a little bit about grace, but what he left out is really important because what he should have told you is after you become a Christian, now you need to make sure that you obey the law, that you eat the right things, that you get circumcised if you've never been circumcised, that you basically put on Jewish cultural practices so that you'll be truly pleasing to God. And Paul didn't tell you that. So we're here to kind of finish the job of what Paul should have told you. That's what's happened. Paul doesn't take kindly to that. And it's not about him. It really is about the truth of the gospel. And he says, these people are troubling you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. Well, what is the distortion? It's helpful to know that in the Greek, the, the word to translated distortion in your translations literally is reverse the gospel. So there's a particular kind of distortion that the Apostle Paul is talking about here. The distortion is the reversal of the order of the gospel. And the first thing that means is there is a certain order to the gospel. If you reverse the order, you actually distort it. Some things don't work if you reverse them, right? So what's the order? Well, verse 6, you get a clue when he says, 
I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. The beginning of the Christian life begins with God calling. And Paul says, he called you in the grace of Christ. So the beginning, the beginning of the order is calling in grace. It wasn't that you did something to get God to notice you, that separated you or made you distinctive from other people. It wasn't because you did something that qualified you to receive grace. No, he called you in grace. It begins with God and it begins with grace. That's the order. And it's the key point in the order. Because most people, I think, if you really begin to press them on how do you get into a relationship with God, a lot of times they'll think, well, you know, I, I, I asked Jesus into my heart. It's like, great, well, why did you do that? Well, I don't know, somebody presented the gospel to me and it sounded true and real, and so I, 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 you know, I responded to it. Well, why did it sound good and true to you? Uh, I don't, you? It's interesting, sometimes people haven't really thought about why, 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 but eventually you get back to either something you did or something God did. And the Bible's really clear. It begins with God, and it begins with grace. And if you switch the order, you distort it. Now, the, the, the particular way that it gets distorted, I think, in our day is by people thinking that they need to do something to qualify them. And, and this happens not just in becoming Christians, but even living as Christians. How often have you heard people say, well, God can't really work in your life unless you surrender to him? That's the worst possible news. It's the worst possible news. And the Bible doesn't teach it. It's basically saying God is thwarted from working unless you allow him. Or sometimes you'll hear people say, well, I, ju I just need to be an empty vessel and let God flow through me. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says God comes and makes dead sinners alive. That's grace. And it's not that you have to do something to qualify that grace. You don't have to be sufficiently sorrowful for your sin to earn God's grace. You don't have to be as sorry for your sin as you should be. Listen, you should be sorry for sin. It's not only uh, going against the way God made you to live, but it's distorting your humanity. It's introducing brokenness all over the place. But you don't have to fully get that to qualify for grace to come to you. God's not seeking and trying to figure out who is really, really sorry for their sin. I think I'm going to bless them with the gospel. No, the gospel is given first. It's given first. I love the way that we sang in that hymn, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Wretched, Weak and Wounded, Sick and Sore, right? Um, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Now, there's a, a version of that song that they sing in a lot of churches where the next line is a chorus that, that kind of goes, I will rise and go to Jesus. Maybe you sung that version. What's the problem with that? Well, number one, it's not the way the original hymn writer wrote it. But it actually, it actually reverses the point of the song. Follow me here. It reverses the point of the song. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Well, is that good news? Not really. What that's saying is, you need to feel your need of him. How sufficiently do you need to feel your need of him to qualify for the gospel? Do you ever feel your need of him sufficiently? 
No. And that's why the way the hymn was written originally, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you. This he gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. And what that means is the Spirit sends a life-giving beam that wakes dead people up. And then you feel your need. And you're drawn into a relationship with him. The gospel doesn't come and say, well, all you got to do is really, really ask Jesus into your heart and really, 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 really mean it. Have you ever been in that place? I remember when I first heard the gospel, I was in ninth grade, and I remember thinking, you know, I really, 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 really need to mean it. And praying every night for a week. God, I'm not sure if I meant it last night, but let me, let me try again. I don't feel different, so maybe I didn't really mean it. Like that kind of garbage is not the gospel. It's a reversal of the order, actually. It says that where it starts is with you doing something or feeling something to qualify for grace. And it actually makes the good news not good news at all. That's what Paul's saying here. Now, there's another way to say it. And it's this. It's to say that so many people, people in the church, are trying to be justified by their sanctification. Now, those are both big words. Justified means that when God looks at you, he sees you as beautiful in his sight because you've done everything that he requires from the heart. That's what it means to be justified. It means to be beautiful in God's sight because you've done everything that he requires and you've done it from the heart. Well, you haven't done that. You haven't done that. But Jesus did that. Jesus did that. And when you become a Christian, you're brought into union, into relationship with him. And when Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus, the one who has earned this beauty on your behalf. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be justified. It's bigger than the old thing you might hear sometimes, just as if I never sinned. Have you ever heard that? Justified does not mean just as if I never sinned. If, if all that ever happened to you when you got justified is you were put back into the place like you had never sinned, you still wouldn't have done everything you need to do to be beautiful in God's sight. See, that's only half a gospel. It sounds good, but it's only half a gospel. You need more than a fresh start. You need the beauty of Jesus given to you to cover you. And that's what justification is. Then sanctification is that beauty that's been given to you as a covering becomes worked into you and becomes, in reality, from the heart, who you are. And that's a progressive work that happens throughout the whole Christian life, okay? So it's important that you don't get those two things mixed up because here's what happens. A lot of people feel like my beauty is based upon how well I'm doing in the Christian life. No, your beauty is settled by what Jesus did. You didn't do anything to earn it. You don't do anything to change it. As a matter of fact, in uh, Peter's first letter, he says that you have a righteousness, an inheritance kept in heaven for you where you can't get at it to screw it up. Jesus has already gotten the verdict for the way he lived and died. God looked at him and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And if you are a Christian, that's the verdict over you. And it can't be changed 
Because God has already judged Jesus as being perfectly beautiful, okay? Now, as that works its way into your life, you change. Yes, of course. But God's smile is based on what Jesus did, not upon how you change. Now, let me give you a perfect uh, or, or a practical way of thinking about this. Let, let's, let's talk about the difference between a good day and a bad day and your effectiveness for Jesus. Let's say you have a day where you wake up, you wake up an hour early, you pray, you read the Bible, you go down to breakfast, you have a great conversation, the Lord really uses you to talk to somebody, you um, go to your first class pop quiz, but you ace it, you get a parking spot right away. And then, at, and then at lunchtime, you sit down with somebody who asks you to tell them about Jesus. Uh, granted, that doesn't happen often. But, but let's just say it does. Now, let's think about a different day where, you know, you wake up late, you don't pray, you don't read your Bible, you yell at your roommate, they left the cap off the to toothpaste again, right? <laughs> Dirty clothes are all over the place, Right? You know, you forgot about the pop quiz and you completely blow it. It's a terrible day. It's a bad day, right? And you go to lunch and, and somebody asks you about Jesus. Now the question is, are you going to be more effective on the good day than the bad day? No. No. <laughs> Thank you. Checks in the mail. Checks in the mail. Yeah. No, but you know, like all of us, all of us like probably know the right Sunday school answer, but honestly, most of us find that hard to believe. We just think that God will be more active in our life when we do the right things. And that's not true. It's not true. It really comes down to this. Does God love us and accept us, and then we seek in a way to live in a way that pleases him? Or do we have to seek to live a life that pleases him so that he will accept us? And, and it's a completely different way to live. I don't know about you, but have you ever been in a relationship, maybe a boyfriend, girlfriend, maybe a relationship with, with your parents, where you felt like you had to perform? Performing always makes you self-conscious, doesn't it? You can't be yourself. And, and so many people, that's how they relate to God. And it's tragic. Paul's going to say later, this is like, what's happened to all your joy? What's happened to all your joy is you're trying to perform. You feel like you need to perform. And you know in your heart of hearts, you're not performing very well. So how does this distortion affect us? Well, Paul says that it troubles the Galatians, says it troubles you. The distortion, the reversal, ends up troubling the church. Now, of course, we know like legalistic kind of churches with all these hoops that you have to jump through are really damaging, and they really are. But I think there's a, a more subtle way that this reversal of the gospel begins to trouble us. And there's a, there's a guy whose letters I just love. His name's William Romaine. Yes, like the lettuce. Um, 
He lived in the 1700s. He was an English pastor. And one of the cool things about those days is that people would often write letters to their pastors, and the pastors would write letters back to them with spiritual counsel. So you actually get to hear uh, the spiritual counsel of some of these pastors. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, wrote an amazing collection of letters. And so did William Romaine. There was one time when somebody wrote him a letter because they were a Christian, but they were always feeling kind of discouraged and kind of like their relationship with God wasn't going well. And I love this. Listen to this and see if this might make sense to you. He, he's, he says, here's the problem. You're looking not at the object of your faith, at Jesus, but you're looking at your faith. He says, you would draw your comfort not from him, not from Jesus, but from your faith. And because your faith is not quite perfect, you are as much discouraged as if Jesus was not quite a perfect savior. And he goes on and he talks about how, you know, what you're really wanting to do is you're wanting basically to put the crown on the head of your faith rather than on Jesus. He, said, he goes on, he says, even like you're basically, like, jump down a few lines, he says, this is making a Jesus of your faith. Have you ever thought about that? He says, you're making a Jesus of your faith. And in effect, taking the crown of crowns from his head and placing it upon the head of your faith. Lord, grant that you may never do this anymore. But then he goes on and talks about this. He says, I observe how by this mistake you are robbed of the sweet enjoyment of the God of all comfort. So here's your problem. You're basically looking at your faith rather than looking at Jesus. Your faith isn't perfect, and so you feel discouraged all the time. And here he goes, here's the problem. The Holy Ghost, the Comforter, will not glorify your faith. He will not give it the honor of comforting you because he takes nothing to comfort but the things of Christ. He says, basically, when you make a Jesus of your faith, you're always going to be discouraged because your faith is not what God looks at. Your faith and how strong your faith is, is not what God looks at. God looks at the object of your faith, who's perfect. But I think Christians get into this problem. People that have been around like church get into this a lot. They just feel like, like my faith isn't very strong, and therefore, like, I, I just wonder what God thinks about me. What God thinks about you is not based on the strength of your faith. It's based on the object of your faith. Your faith is the empty hand that receives Jesus. It's not something that earns Jesus for you. But so many people think of it that way. Here's the best way I know to explain it. Have you ever been in a relationship where you had like DTR talks every day? <laughs> yeah, the quickest way to fall out of love with somebody is to constantly analyze the relationship. So much so that you lose sight of the beauties of the other person. It's true. And that's what some of us are doing with Jesus. Like we're always looking at our faith rather than looking at the beauties of Jesus. The way your faith grows is by seeing the beauties of Jesus, not by looking at your faith, not by worrying about your faith, not by thinking about your faith all the time. Now, there, there's another way that the gospel gets reversed. That's what happens in, in good Bible-believing churches. In, in churches that maybe are more progressive, 
maybe more liberal in their theology, places that say, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're a good person. Well, that ends up, you know, being a reversal of the gospel too, because how good do you have to be? So at one level, that sounds good. Yeah, I hate all these Christians that are always arguing about what you need to believe. These people don't think you need to believe really much of anything as long as you're a good person. Well, that's not very helpful because you're not a good person, and neither am I, right? You don't have strong enough faith for, to earn God's smile, and you're not a good enough person to earn God's smile. So we're really without hope unless the gospel is true. So how bad is it really? <laughs> Well, Paul says it in very strong language here. He says that you've distorted or you've deserted the one who called you in grace. And this word here in verse 6 used for desert is a very strong word. It refers to committing treason and turning away from our allegiance to God. Now, some of you might be getting a little uncomfortable. Uh, what? Uh, what does that mean? What is this talking about? Here's, he's not talking about losing your salvation. What he's talking about, though, is very important to understand and very serious. What he's saying is, if you reverse the gospel, you bring serious relational harm to the way you think about God. Not necessarily the way he thinks about you. Remember, the way he thinks about you is settled by what Jesus did in your place. But... If you reverse the order of the gospel and feel like it's up to you to keep the smile of God, one thing we know is it won't be very long before you don't really want to hang out with God and spend time with God. Because every time you do, you just feel bad about all the things you're not doing. So to reverse the gospel ends up sort of driving you away from God, deserting him. It's a strong word. It, what it means is that failure to embrace that everything begins with grace is to try and live in a relationship with God based on your own works has disastrous relational consequences. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And this relationship that should be beautiful becomes filled with fear and suspicion, and bitterness. You know why? Because you'll look at your life, and you'll see the things that you don't have, the feelings that you don't have, and you really only have one of two conclusions to why your life is not the way you want it to be. If you, if you, if you reverse the gospel, here's what you think. Either God isn't giving me what I deserve because I've really sacrificed for him, I've really lived for him. I've really tried my best. And he hasn't come through for me. So you'll be mad at God. Or you'll be mad at yourself, more likely. You'll think, you know, I just haven't tried hard enough. I haven't taken this seriously enough. If I did, God would bless me and give me what I really want, the desires of my heart. Both of those are lies from the pit of hell. Because God's blessings come because of what was secured by Jesus on the cross, not because of what you've done. But, but it, if you think that it's what you do that determines how God relates to you, what should be this beautiful relationship becomes like this tit-for-tat kind of relationship where you're either mad at God or mad at yourself. 
That's what happens. There's one other bad effect that Paul alludes to here. The distortion of the gospel makes us live for the approval of others. The true gospel gives us courage and sets us free from living for the approval of others. Do you see how Paul puts it? It's very strong. He says, basically, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Do we have any people pleasers in here? Yeah, we all are. We really are. Now, you know, I'm not saying that a better way to live would just be a jerk. Though my wife would tell you that that seems to be like the way I live most of the time. <laughs> it's, it's true. My, my idol is more comfort, so I would rather like you don't like me and don't ask me to do things than that you're pleased with me all the time, okay? That's my issues. But most of you are much nicer than that, and that means that you want people to like you. You live for approval, and what, what Paul's saying is here, you can't do it. Now, you might, be, you might read this verse and be like, wow, I could never get to the point where I would say that. Like, Paul is so, like, way up here, and I'm just like this little peon. Like, because I could never say that. I, it seems that if I have to choose between, you know, honoring God and pleasing men, I'm all about pleasing people. And I wish I could squeeze in a little bit of love for God, but, man, I'm really about making people like me. What is it that gives Paul such freedom? Because it's not enough just to see how Paul lives and admire it. What's going to help us? What's the gospel? See, the confidence that comes from knowing you're fully accepted in God's embrace because Jesus did everything necessary for you to secure the smile of God, that he took everything on the cross that would cause God to want to run away from you, Every bit of it was wiped away on the cross. And Jesus did everything needed to secure the smile of God forever. When you know that and that's settled, it changes everything. It allows you to say, I don't have to have your approval to live. I can actually be honest with you for a change. That doesn't mean I have to be cruel, but I can be honest. I can actually love somebody, even if it means being the friend who wounds faithfully. You can't do that. See, if you're obsessed with what does God think about me, you can't really focus on other people. The gospel, C.S. Lewis said it this way once. He said, the gospel isn't supposed to make you think less of yourself. It's to help you think of yourself less. So you're not always thinking. And so many of us are always thinking about, what does God think about me now? What does God think about me now? It's like that Sprint commercial. You know, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? God, do you like me now? Do you like me now? How about now? If that's the way you think, if that's the thing that you worry about, if that's what wakes you up in the middle of the night and keeps you from being able to go back to sleep, one thing we know is you're not actually thinking about other people. The gospel is supposed to secure the relationship with God so that you don't have to worry about it all the time. And you can focus on other people. I want to close with this... Uh, the story about this guy, Václav Havel. Václav Havel was the president of the Czech Republic. You ever heard about this guy? The, the, the revolution to overthrow communism in Czechoslovakia uh, is called the Velvet Revolution because it was bloodless. 
And I, I remember, you know, I'm old enough to remember watching CNN when all these people just basically camped out in the president's yard outside his palace. And everybody was wondering, are the Russians going to send in tanks and take care of their guy? But they didn't. And eventually he slipped out the back and took off. Well, years later, I was talking to this guy. He's went on to be with the Lord now, a guy named Hughes Old, a great uh, scholar of worship and the Reformation. And he told me that he'd been become friends with the, um, the Orthodox patriarch there in Czechoslovakia, who literally was preaching a sermon that night on Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. The people got so fired up with the sermon that they marched out of the church and marched to the president's palace and camped out and wouldn't leave. Now later, Václav Havel was asked, how was it that, that this revolution in Czechoslovakia to overthrow communism was bloodless, where in a lot of other places it wasn't like that. And he said, well, what you need to understand is, you know, we had this parallel society during the days of communism in Czechoslovakia. Now, Havel was a Christian and a politician and a playwright. And he said, in this parallel society, we told our plays, we sang our songs, so that the truth got so deeply rooted in us that we could go out into the streets of Prague and say to the communists, we don't believe your lies anymore. And communism had to fall. Guys, that's what we're doing tonight. That's why we open up God's word so that the truth could get into us so that we can go out in the world and say, I don't believe your lies anymore. That's why we sing these songs like Rock of Ages or Come You Sinners or all these songs so that the truth gets into us. We can go out into the world and say, I don't believe your lies anymore. I don't believe that my value is based on how well I do in school. I don't believe that my worth is based on what I look like or who looks at me or how well I do at this audition or that performance. But it's hard to live that way. It's hard to believe that what other people think about you is not the defining reality. The gospel is the defining reality. And we need a countercultural community to help us live in a different way. And that's what Paul's talking about here. That this gospel would get so into our hearts that we could go out in the world and say, I don't believe. And here's the thing. When you're tempted to live for the approval of others, don't just sort of scold yourself and say, oh, I need to quit doing that. No, connect it to what Paul says it connects to. It connects to a reversal of the gospel. So when you're tempted to live for the approval of others, you have to think, what am I doing with the gospel? What am I forgetting about God and his goodness? What am I forgetting about what he's done? I'm acting like I have amnesia. Like I forgot that God has secured my relationship with him by what Jesus did. I'm acting like I have to supplement that. When I'm, when I'm living for the approval of others, I've reversed the gospel. God, help me to see how I've reversed the gospel. Remind me of what's true so that I don't have to live in this kind of bondage anymore. Martin Luther said one time that bad theology is a cruel taskmaster. He doesn't want you to, God doesn't want you to live under that bondage. Let's pray together.